big deal. I've got a lot of stuff on the calendar, and sometimes people find it a challenge to get to know other people in the, just a couple hours that we're here. And I will encourage you that all these different events up here, um, pick a few and go to them. It's a great way to make friends with people and build relationships with people uh, outside of this context. It's kind of hard to do that when we're all facing from the room. It's easier, I think, because we, we have lunch every Shabbat and we eat after service. That makes it a little bit easier, but we try, um, I've always kind of had this ratio of building a good biblical community and healthy relationships with people. Uh, you want one third of the people facing the back of someone else's head and, and worshiping uh, together in unison. One third of the time, two thirds of the time facing each other somehow. And that could be eating together. That could be carrying some boxes as you move someone out of their house. And I'll tell you guys, moving someone, helping someone move is one of the biggest ministry opportunities we have in our congregation, believe it or not. You're saving someone several hundred dollars by doing that. People will come to me from time to time. They'll say, I want to serve. I want to figure out how to um, volunteer at this or do that or whatever. I'll tell you, mowing the lawn here, <laughs> uh, changing air filters, taking out trash, helping people move. There you go. Uh, there's the answer, to your, the answer to your question. There's a big, big help. And uh, it makes a big difference, too. But also it's a great way to, to interact with people and get to know them. But caution, the people that you're going to get to know are fallen and they're imperfect. And you will have conflict, right? But that's okay. We, we work through conflict and we're stronger for it, right? And it's a beautiful thing. Let's go uh, to Genesis chapter 37. Anthony did a great job of teaching on Genesis 36, did he not? He did. I was blown away. He's awesome. And uh, did a fantastic job. And that's why I love having other speakers up here every so often to fill in for me. Gives me a break. It prevents burnout for me to have to do that. I work full time as well. And so preparing and studying throughout the week takes time. But also it, it equips and allows other people to exercise the gifts that they have been given. And it edifies the body by doing that. So if it's just me up here talking all the time, number one, I might burn out. And number two, you're not experiencing the gifts that other people have been given that are in our congregation. So I really appreciate him doing that. Um, if, you, if you haven't done so, thank him for teaching and, and, and compliment him. Um, that would mean the world to him. But before we jump into Genesis 37, we just got introduced to a character named Yosef, Joseph. Martin, would you get my board pull up here? I'm sorry about you. Joseph was the last son, the son of the old age of his father, Jacob, Yaakov. And Joseph comes on the scene, and his father is, guess how old when he has him? Anybody 91 or around 91 in the room? I'm, I'm incriminating people here. He was 91 years old when he had, been, when he had, uh, when he had Joseph. He was the son of his old age. Scripture calls it. Now, Joseph is going to come on the scene, and before we talk about this, I want to explain there's kind of this concept in our faith, but also within the Jewish faith, in some sects of the Jewish faith, what we call Judaism, and it's the concept of there being two messiahs. Now, when I say two messiahs, you might be thinking like two distinct human beings or individuals, and that would be a problem, that would be problematic, right? Don't think of it that way. Think of it as two advents of the same messiah. One, his first coming would be uh, what we call a suffering servant that is described in passages like uh, Isaiah chapter 53. Psalm 22. 22. Yeah, someone who would have to suffer and then die to atone for the unrighteousness of his people 
and then resurrect, and then a second coming would be likened to the reign of King David. So you've got the first one that is a suffering kind of servant looking person. Then you've got a second advent, which is someone who is a conquering king, someone that comes as victorious and it's not, there's no suffering really involved. He's coming with a rod of iron. He's coming, he's coming to figure out and, and separate the wheat from the chat and, the, and the, the goats from the sheep. Okay. Now there's this phrase, and many of you in this room are familiar with this already, but this is a, a phrase called that there is Mashiach or Messiah ben Yosef. Mashiach, like in the likeness of Yosef. Then there is Mashiach ben David, Messiah, the son of David. There's these two cons of Messiah, okay? And this is prevalent within some uh, like Hasidic uh, movements of Judaism even to this day. All right, I was talking to a few Hasidic men one time on the way back flying out of Tel Aviv, and I mentioned this to them, and they were shocked that I knew about this concept uh, because it's one that is, is pretty deep, okay? But we as, as Christians and mainstream Christianity would adhere to this philosophy and this theology, we could say it is, that there is that Messiah, that Jesus had to come and suffer and die, and that he will return victorious and reign as king. That's, that's it. That's the concept. Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David. Okay? So what we're about to do is we're about to enter into a narrative that's going to take up 25% of the book of Genesis. That's huge. When you think about it, there's like, I don't know, five to ten words describing the creation of the world. And there's a lot of there's a lot of lot of text that is talking about this man Abraham, but 25% of this book that we've been studying through the past several months is going to be focused on this man. His name is Yosef, and I believe is is one of the most detailed and explicit prophetic pictures and foreshadows of the life of Yeshua, the life of Christ, that we're about to read here from this point to the end of the book of Genesis. So we could say that all the events leading up to this point in the book of Genesis have been building up and building up for this climactic narrative that is the life of Joseph. That all the book of Genesis has been a means to an end up until this point. Does that make sense? It's a pretty big statement, isn't it? But I would say that on a bigger scale, the entire Bible is a means to an end to describe and to build up to this climatic experience that is the, the advent, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the return of Yeshua of Nazareth. So the book of Genesis, in a way, can be viewed as like a little miniature Bible, a little miniature microcosm, microcosmic picture of the whole story of the Bible. Okay? And we're going to go through, as we go through these latter chapters of the book of Genesis, we're going to bring those out in a big way, how Yeshua and Yosef are pictures of each other. Or Yosef is a picture of Yeshua in a prophetic sense. But 25%. Now, Joseph is interesting because he's only one of maybe two people that I can think of that, that has never spoken uh, poorly of by, the author of the, by all the authors of the Bible. There's only one other person I can think of that has that clean of a track record in the Bible. Can anybody think of him or her? Moses, no. 
Yeshua. Well, let's 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 narrow it down to uh, let's narrow it down to the, the, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Anybody? Abraham? No. The Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible. The only person I can think of the Bible doesn't speak anything poorly of is the prophet Daniel. Isn't that interesting? Now maybe I mean you can think about it throughout. I I, I you know stand be corrected if you think of someone else, but. What that means is that God thinks really highly of Yosef. That maybe he had some character flaws, but we don't know about them, do we? But 25% of this book is going to be dedicated on his life. So let's go. Open your Bibles to Genesis 37. And we've got a lot of ground to cover. I say that every week. It says, Yaakov continued living in the land where his father had lived as a foreigner in the land of Canaan. And here is the history of Yaakov, Jacob. Here's the told dotes. When Yosef was 17 years old, he used to pasture the flock with his brothers. Are there any 17-year-old males in the room? Jacob, where's Jacob at? How old is Jacob? Okay, 17. So I I bring that up because I want you to picture a 17-year-old boy. A 17-year-old young man, sorry. Okay? So so Jacob can be our, our, our Joseph today. All right? He's 17 years old. It kind of sets the context a little bit. Once when he was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, he brought a ra'ah, a bad report about them to their father. Now, Israel loved, or Jacob loved. You see how he's using those names interchangeably. He loved, which... um, it, it better, a better sense of the word is that he invested in or gave to more his son, Yosef, more than all his other children. Because he was the son of his old age. Now, how old was he? 91. 91. And he made him a katonet pasim. Katonet pasim. This is it written out in Hebrew from right to left. Katonet pasim. What is a katonet pasim? I'm glad you asked. The only other usage we have of these two words combined in this way, katonet pasim, is used in Second Samuel verse. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Second Samuel chapter 13, talking about a young woman by the name of Tamar, and if you remember, she is seized by her brother uh, in a very inappropriate way. But it says that she is wearing upon herself a katonet pasim. And it goes on to describe why that is. And it says the king's daughters at that time would wear these to express two things, royalty and virginity. Royalty and virginity. So here we have, um, way earlier than that in the book of Genesis, Joseph is giving this very costly robe, this katonet, which is a garment of pasim. Now, if I take this pasim, this plural ending off of this word, and just have the word pas. That means, that could mean a few different things. It could mean stripes, it could mean colors, or it could mean stripes of colors. Okay? This is used, remember when um, Isaac bound, uh, I'm sorry, somebody help me out here. Abraham. Abraham bound Isaac on Mount Moriah. Remember that? And it says when he bound him, the ropes, it, it gave him pasim. He, he bounds him, they gave him like stripes. Okay, and we talked about that when we covered that portion, how it's a foreshadow of by his stripes we are healed. Yeshua was, wasn't he given stripes? And I have a picture up here. 
that Yeshua was whipped, right? He was flogged and given stripes. So it can mean that, but also it can mean different colors, or it could be both. Like the Septuagint, it uses, it translates um, the word pasim here in, in Greek to uh, poikitas, or I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, po- poikilas is what it is in the Greek. And that literally 100% of the, mean, 100% of the time means different colors, okay? So is it a striped garment or is it uh, have a lot of different colors? Yes. It's probably both. And that's where we get the phrase, the coat of many colors, okay? So he's given them this. The, the main thing we're supposed to latch on to and realize here is that this is a coat which signifies a very high and exalted status, okay? A status of favor. And it says in verse 4, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his other brothers, they began to hate him. And they reached a point where they couldn't even talk with him in a civil way. Now, this is um, interesting because uh, have you ever hated someone or really disliked someone that you couldn't even look at them in the eyes? You couldn't even talk with them and just like you had this cold war with them. You know, even to this day, um, a lot of anti-missionaries, people that argue against Yeshua being the Messiah, they will use a, 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 a slanderous term. When talking about Messiah, talking about Yeshua of Nazareth, they know exactly, you know, from the New Testament, they'll say that he is, he's not Yeshua, which means salvation. He's Yeshu, which is a, which is a, almost like a, um, a, a slanderous term. And it's used as an acrostic. Uh, if you take those letters, it can spell the phrase, may his name be blotted out. So even to this day, many Orthodox Jews in Israel who do not believe he is Messiah will use his name. They cannot speak with him in a civil way. They have to speak. They can't look at it very objectively. Now, maybe he is, maybe he is. They have to say he's Yeshu. Get away from me. You cannot missionize me. Right? It's a very, they, they look at him as someone they, they really hate. Verse 5. Yosef had a halam, a dream, which he told his brothers, and that made him hate him made them hate him all the more. Now, the first dream we ever see is in Genesis 20, and it's talking about Abimelech had a dream about Abraham, right? This is a like a, a divinely inspired uh, uh, insight into something that's going to happen, a halam. And he says to his brothers, listen while I tell you about this dream of mine. We were tying up bundles of wheat, which... Wheat is where, what we use to make what? Bread. bread. And bread is always a picture of what in Scripture? Life, but what? What brings life? God's Word. The Word of God. So here we have, he's saying, we were going out to harvest the wheat. He's already talking prophetically, and he's foreshadowing a time that is to come where there will be limited amounts of wheat. And he's saying, we were tying up wheat in the field when suddenly my bundle got up by itself and stood upright. Now that should, in your mind, when you hear the word stood upright and by itself, you should hear the, the language of what? Resurrection. Then, so let me pause here and say that, yes, these dreams could be exclusively about Yosef. But these dreams could even, you know, there's a, a, a principle when looking at prophecy that there is a near fulfillment and there is a bigger and larger fulfillment of that, of that prophecy. 
The near might be what happens in the life of Joseph. The far and bigger might be the what? The death, burial, the betrayal, death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. So you have to look at it with that kind of those, you know, looking at both, both paradigms here. Then your bundles came. They gathered, gathered around mine and they prostrated themselves before it. And his brothers retorted, yes, you will certainly be our king. You'll do a great job of bossing us around. And Stacey asked last night, she's like, is this maybe the first occurrence of sarcasm in the Bible? Perhaps. And they hated him still more for his dreams and for what he said. Now, what's interesting about this is that this dream is agrarian in nature, meaning it's dealing with agriculture, right? There's, there's only 10 dreams in the Torah total, and this is one of them, and this is agriculturally themed. Now, who else spoke with a lot of agriculturally themed parables? Yeshua did. Yeah. Verse 9. He had another dream, which he told his brothers. Here, I had another dream. There were the sun and the moon and 11 stars prostrating themselves before me. And he told his father this too, as well as his brothers. But his father rebuked him. What is this dream you have had? Do you really expect me, your mother and your brothers to come prostrate themselves, ourselves before you on the ground? Now, what's the problem with this? Are there any problems? Patrick, I see your wheels turning. Anybody see, anybody see any blatant problems with this? Who cannot prostrate themselves because they, they have already died? His, mom. His mother. So already this is a hint that maybe this is speaking to something that is a bigger, more future fulfillment. That um, maybe Jacob is taking it like, okay, yeah, we might bow down to you. Yeah, right. But how can we do that, right? But maybe he's looking at it with a very kind of tunnel vision, with a limited view. That maybe this is talking about a, a further out and a bigger fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, we could say, yes, you know, maybe he's right. That maybe this interpretation of the sun and the moon, that's Jacob and, and, and Rivka. Or... If you look over at Revelation chapter 12, if you want to go there real quick, I'll turn there real fast. I think we're doing okay on time. Look with, with me to Revelation chapter 12. Very last book of the Bible. Who is this moon or this woman? Look at Revelation 12. Let's look at a verse. We can look at verse 3. Another sign, Revelation 12, 3. Another sign was seen in heaven. There was a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on its head were seven royal crowns. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven and threw them down to the earth. It stood in front of the woman about to give birth so that it might devour the young child in the moment it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child the one who will rule all the nations with a staff of iron. But her child was snatched up to God and his throne, and she fled into the desert, where she has a place prepared by God so that she can be taken care of for 1,260 days. So this woman, it says, um, maybe somebody you can find it, but it talks about her having 12 stars under her feet. 
Now, we can make up uh, definitions when it comes to the book of Revelation. I've seen people talk about the woman being the church and the church is about to give birth or whatever. But if we look at the Bible and we reframe our interpretation of the Bible correctly, that Israel is the centerpiece of this story and the vehicle of salvation through which the promises of God are preserved and the lineage of Mashiach is preserved. We can read the book of Revelation. We can start to read it in the proper paradigm as opposed to in a uh, replacement theology kind of paradigm where the church has replaced Israel. That throws us into a lot of different confusion and we end up making up all kinds of weird definitions for the interpretations of Revelation 12. But it says, 11 stars were prostrating themselves before me. Verse 10, going back to Genesis. He told his father too, as well as his brothers, but his father rebuked him. What is this dream you've had? Do you really expect me and your mother and your brothers to come and prostrate ourselves before you on the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter. It says, Shamar et hadavar. He guarded the matter in his mind. What does that remind me of? It reminds me of Luke chapter 2, verse 51, if you want to look over there real fast. Luke 2, 51. Luke 2, 51. So he went with them to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And this is talking about the right after Passover, Yeshua stays back in Jerusalem and they lose him and they come back and they find him sitting in the temple. And it says, but his mother stored up all these things in her heart. Sound familiar? It says that he kept the matter in his mind. Verse 12. And after this, when his brothers had gone to pasture his father's sheep, in Shechem, I got my map up here. I'll give you an idea. We're talking about he's leaving Hebron and he's going north to Shechem, which is approximately 60 miles to the north. He's sending him. He says, come, I will send you to them. Now, let's, let me send out some verses real fast. Um, uh, let me send them out to uh, Paul. Can I get you to look up John 3, 16 and 17? Do you mind? And then let me get uh, Ariana. Can you do John 4, 34? And Mary, would you mind looking up John 6, 38? He says, he's, he's going out looking for the shepherds who are, should be pasturing the flock. Should be pasturing the flock. Who's got John 3, 16? Is that you, Paul? 3, 16, 17. 3, 16. Yeah, would you mind reading it nice and loud? Yeah, go ahead and read something. You hear the language there? He sent not his son to condemn the world, but through him it might be saved. Who's got John 4, 34? Here we go. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You hear the language there? My will is to, my, my, my food is to do the, the will of one who sent me. And then Mary 6, 38. You hear the language being presented there. So by, by Jacob sending him out to check on the, on the ones who should be guarding the sheep. Um, he's speaking in a prophetic way of, of a bigger, uh, more, more um, climactic character who will be sent to check on the shepherds of the sheep and to assess whether or not they're being good shepherds. And he answered, here's the phrase, he named me. He answered, here I am. 
Now, you guys know, as we've been studying through the book of Genesis, anytime we hear this phrase, he nay me, this person better buckle up because their life is about to change, right? He nay me, here I am. It's a loaded phrase. And he said to him, go now, see whether things are going well with your brothers and with the sheep. Now, in scripture, the nation and the people of Israel are compared to what type of animal? Sheep. So you see the, the allegory being drawn here. And bring back word to me. So he sent him away from the Hebron Valley, and he went to Shechem, which is 60 miles to the north, which is where later we learn from Joshua chapter 24, where Joseph will actually be buried. So I see a hand up. Michael. Is that the uh, same Shechem? It is. It's 100% the same Shechem, yeah. And in fact, Jacob actually owns a piece of land here, doesn't he? He's taking him back to maybe a piece of property that he owns, where maybe, he, maybe his sons are supposed to be uh, pasturing the sheep on this particular piece of land. And it says there in verse 15, a man found him wandering around in the countryside. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, he answered. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the sheep? In other words, they're not here. They're not where they're supposed to be. They're not, supposed to be, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing in the place where they're supposed to be doing it. Now, when Yeshua came, how many times did he say, you evil or you wicked or you perverse generation? How many times did he call out the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the people that should be pasturing the sheep of Israel? How many times did he call them out? They were not doing what they were supposed to do. And he says, the man said, they've left here. Because I heard them say, let's go to Dothan, Dothan, where we get the city of our, you know, the name of our city, Dothan. It means the place of two wells, which is another 10 miles to the north. So now Joseph, picture him with his coat of many colors, his coat of royalty, his coat of favor, is kind of traversing around in the countryside, a dangerous time to do that. And he's 70 miles from home now. It's very far from home, isn't he? Yosef went after his brothers and he found them there in Dothan. Now he's ultimately looking for the brothers, yes. But ultimately he's looking for what? The flock. Yeshua says that I have not come but for who? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. The lost sheep. He's looking for his father's sheep. And yeah, he may see that the shepherds are not doing a good job of pasturing the sheep and he's going to bring that report back to him. But ultimately it's all about the sheep, right? And we see in Ezekiel 34, verse 11, if you want, we're not going to read it right now for the sake of time, but there's a lot of language there about the lost sheep and how Mashiach will be sent for the sheep and regather the sheep of the house of Israel. Verse, 11, verse 18, they spotted Yosef in the distance, and before he had arrived where they were, they had already plotted to kill him. Speaking of evil, man. And they said to each other, look, this dreamer, is coming so come now let's kill him and throw him into these water cisterns and then we'll say some wild animal devoured him we'll see then what becomes of his dreams but when reuben heard this he saved him from being killed by them and he said we shouldn't take his life don't shed his blood reuben added Throw him into the cistern here in the wilds, but don't lay hands on him yourselves because he intended to go back and rescue him later and restore him to his father. 
about Reuben. Uh, you see, he has to be secretive about his plans to save his own brother's life, doesn't he? So it was that when Yosef arrived to be with his brothers, they stripped off this katonit pasim, this robe, the long-sleeved robe that he was wearing. Right? That's the first thing to go for. It's like the symbol of our dad's favor. And took him and threw him into the cistern. And the cistern was empty without any water in it. Now, the Torah throughout Scripture, like if you read Isaiah chapter 55, the Torah is always likened, the Scripture in general is likened to water as well. The things that keep us alive, in other words, water and bread. And um, there is no such thing as an empty cistern. If your cistern is empty and devoid of God's word, of water, we could say, it's going to be full of other things. Now, in the desert, there's all kinds of creepy, crawly things, right? Things that will bite you or sting you, scorpions and snakes, right? Just a good principle to learn here that there is no such thing as an empty cistern. You will fill your life with things that are opposed to God's word. There is no such thing as neutral. You're either for his kingdom or you're against it. You will fill your life with those things if you're not filling it with God's word. Then they sat, verse 25, down to eat their meal. Now, this reminds me of how they had to hurry up and get Yeshua's body in a tomb before what meal? Passover. They sat down. Yeshua was in the tomb. He was dead. They buried him. They're like, good, he's no more. That troublemaker, that rogue rabbi from the Galilee, he's dead. Let's sit down and let's eat our meal. But as they looked up, they saw in front of them a caravan of Yishmaelim or Ishmaelites. These are the sons of Hagar, by the way. They're descendants of the sons of Hagar. If you remember her, she was the Egyptian slave who was brought to Avram, and Avram had children with her. He had Ishmael with her. These are his descendants. And they were coming from Gilad, and their camels were loaded with aromatic gum, with healing resin, and opium. And they were on their way down to Egypt, or in Hebrew, Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is the Hebrew word for Egypt. Mitzrayim means literally uh, the place of Sarah, <laughs> the place of troubles, the place of many troubles and toils. So it says they're going down to the place of troubles, Mitzrayim. And Yehuda, Judah, said to his brothers, what advantage is it to us if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites instead of putting him to death with our own hands. Now we have Judah here selling. He's trying to make a buck. He's trying to make some silver off of the betrayal of his own brother. Who was, who was the disciple that betrayed Yeshua for silver? Judah. Judah. And, and his, his more uh, Hellenized name is Judas, right? But you see there's like a little small prophetic uh, hint of that. And after all, he says, he is our brother. He's our own flesh. Suddenly he's like, no, let's not kill him. He's our own brother, right? He's like pretending he actually has like a, a moral fiber in his body for once here. And his brothers paid attention to him. So when the Midianim, it, which is synonymous with the Ishmaelites, when the merchants passed by, they drew and lifted Joseph up out of the cisterns and sold him for half a pound of silver shekels to the Ishmaelites who took Yosef to Egypt. A couple things here. I've heard a couple scholars and biblical commentators say that this is the, the price that was paid at that time for 
a very old slave, someone who would not have been able to be worth that much money. They're selling them for really cheap, in other words. They're just like, ah, oh, whatever you're going to give me for him. He's not worth it. Secondly, they're going down to Egypt. Now, what we see here is the very beginning of a fulfillment of a promise that was given to Abraham back in Genesis 15. Turn with me. Genesis 15, verse 13. Genesis 15, 13. You guys remember that? Genesis 15, 13. And the Lord said to Avram, Know this for certain, your descendants will be foreigners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be slaves and held in oppression there for 400 years. But I will also judge that nation, the one that makes them slaves. So here we have it. The beginnings of the fulfillment of this promise and this warning given to Avram about his descendants. Now what's interesting here is we have these 12 brothers, the very powerful men. Very uh, zealous men, aren't they? Especially Levi and Simeon, remember them? Uh, they were like, let's go just in, let's get all circumcised and go in and just slay them all. Remember that? Very zealous individuals. Now think about the potential of this family. The potential for such good, isn't there? If all these brothers just decided to unite for a righteous cause and spread the message of of monotheism and the God of their fathers to the world around them. Amazing what they could do, right? They'd almost be like apostles of their father going out and spreading the gospel. And then we get a redo later of the 12 disciples, don't we? That's so much true. Like you see people with great zeal sometimes, sometimes people that come into our congregation, great zeal and passion and energy and yet they butt heads with someone that has equal passion and zeal and energy, and the two spin off like two atoms that are like an atomic reaction. And, and then everyone loses, and then they take people with them, and the body suffers because of it. The body is wounded because of that. But think of the, the converse, the potential of these zealous, energetic, godly people if they could push through the conflict and, and, and somehow sacrifice one's own pride to overcome this, the amazing amount of potential and kinetic energy that can be found that would greatly enhance the health of the body. Which one do you think Satan wants? He wants the former. So you're either scattering or you're gathering. You're either scattering or you're gathering with everything that you do and every word that you speak. But these guys, they are scattering. It says in verse 29, Reuben returned to the cistern, and upon seeing that Yosef wasn't in it, he tore his clothes in mourning. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I go now? They took Yosef's katonid pasim, and they killed a male goat, and they dipped the robe in the blood. Now how did Jacob deceive his father? You see, what do they say? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Sin begets sin. Deception begets deception. Unless we allow the Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts within us. We can stop that cycle. Then and only then, the sin not beget sin. You can say, nope, I'm going to change things because I am born again. And I am not subjected to the curses and the strongholds and the patterns of sin and dysfunction of my past and my family's past. 
That does not have any power or authority over me anymore. But yeah, they're just doing what they know their father did. And they dipped the robe in the blood. Then they sent the katonit pasim, the robe, and brought it to their father saying, we found this. Do you know if it's your son's robe or not? He recognized it and he cried. He said, it is my son's robe. Some wild animal has torn Yosef in pieces and eaten him. So Yaakov tore his clothes. And putting sackcloth around his waist, he mourned for his son for many days. Now, was there something torn when Yeshua died? Turn with me to Matthew 27, 50. Matthew 27, 50. Matthew 27, 50. But Yeshua again, crying out in a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. And at that moment, the veil, the parochet in the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. How would, how would Jacob have ripped his garments? Top to bottom. Top to bottom. See, the veil of the temple is like the, the katonit, the, the, the garment of God. It's what you needed to pass through to get to God's heart, the Holy of Holies. And it's like he, and, and it's very, Matthew is very intentional in saying it ripped top to bottom. That thing would have been super tall. I don't know the exact dimensions of it. Super tall. Matthew is saying that basically this had to have been a divine renting of a garment from top to bottom. No human could do this. Unless they had Ted's man lift or something like that. Now everyone knows he had a man lift, and now everyone's going to borrow your man lift. And the thickness as well. Yeah, and the thickness as well. Very good. Yeah, yeah. And putting sackcloth, he mourned many days. Though all his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, he refused all consolation, saying, No, I will go down to the grave, to my son, mourning. And his father wept for him. In Mitzrayim, in Egypt, the, Midian, the Midianites sold Yosef to a man named Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So there we have the end of the chapter. Everything's hunky-dory, right? Now, I'm going to ask a question, and you probably won't figure out the answer right away, but once you do, you're going to be like, oh, man, what is missing from this story that's been pretty uh, consistent up in, in, in the Torah up until this point. What's missing from this story? And, and the fact that maybe you don't think of it right away, some of you might get there eventually, it lends credence to the principle that I'm about to share with you. What is missing from this story? That's been in pretty much, I want to say most, if not all chapters up until this point. You ready for it? You want the answer? Are you stumped? The name of God. Any mention of God. It's like, He's just not there. But yet, up until this point, he's very intricately involved in a lot of other people's lives. No intervention. There's no intervention. And it seems at this moment, you know, God's name is not here. It's like all hope is lost. The brother of the, the promise, the, the one that was shown favor, is thrown into a pit. He's sold into slavery. And it's like we leave off here. And what's the point of all this? God, I don't see God in this. 
And sometimes we get to a point like that, don't we? And I'm sure the followers of Yeshua in the first century were like, God, where are you here? In those three days waiting for him to resurrect, they're like, what are you going to do in this? Is this, is this really going to happen? Or like, what's happening here? Our lives are at stake. Do we really believe this? A lot of trial and testing takes place in the motives of our heart when God is not evident and something bad happens. And that's just a general principle. And we would call this, looking, if we stopped here and we looked at the story, we would say that this is a big mess, right? This is not going to end well for Joseph or for the family, right? But, you know, we have the luxury of knowing, kind of being familiar with the story and going back and reading that, wait a second, God's name is not mentioned in this story, but did God orchestrate every single one of these events to take place the way they did? See, that is a lesson I took away from this story, is that sometimes... um, uh, let me find them. God can use the evil of humanity to bring about the fulfillment of his will and desire. So he's not the author of evil. He's not the author of fear, not the author of confusion. He's not the author of, of, of violence that humans commit and injustice. But can he use all of that to his glory? And we can look back at the story and say, yes, he ended up doing that. Because if it wasn't for all this betrayal stuff and all this lying and cheating and selling and everything going on, that the family and the lineage of Israel would not have been preserved. So a principle in this is that if you are going through this kind of godless era of your life and this season of your life, we're like, God's not here. He's not going to help me with this. He's not, he's not working through this. You will probably one day look back and if you allow yourself to re-examine the story in light of how all the events did play out, you should give God glory for that. Now we know Paul writes that God works all things together for what? For good. Yeah, so we know that that's a principle in Scripture, but man, when we're in the midst of it, it's hard to really take hold of that principle, isn't it? Because we're stressed out, we're, we're, we're wondering, we're fearful, we're just, just wrought with anxiety. And we forget to say, God, you're in this somewhere. You're in this somehow. I don't know right now how, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust that you are. And I'm going to be obedient in the small things. I'm going to do just the, the next right thing. And then maybe one day I'll give you glory for it. But that's a, that's a lesson I took from today. Another lesson I took is sometimes God gives us dreams or words of knowledge about someone or a particular situation. Sometimes these dreams or words are to be shared with those people, like, like Joseph, right? And sometimes they are not. <laughs> if you feel impressed to share them, just be ready for the potential fallout yeah. from sharing them. Sometimes people, uh, they, they, they want to come to you with a dream or a word of knowledge and say, hey, you're not supposed to do this, or I think you're supposed to marry that person, or I think you're not supposed to take that job, or... You are supposed to take that job. I have the word of knowledge. That's fine. You can share that with them. And then sometimes people are like, I'm shocked that they would react that way. I'm so hurt that they would react that way. Yeah. That's not how they expected it to go or something. Or you really stepped on their toes. Or that was a really sensitive subject. That maybe God gave you that word of knowledge or maybe he gave you that dream so that you could just know how to better pray for that person and keep it to yourself. 
Just depends. But you have to pray for wisdom in that. Lesson two I took away. As suffering for the sake of others, like we're about to see Joseph do. Suffering for the sake of others so that they can be drawn nearer to God is, is not just a side peripheral component of our faith. That yeah, every now and then you have to suffer. Guys, the more I study scripture and the more I, I look at the life of Yeshua, I see with more certainty each day that suffering is the central component of our faith. If we're called a nation of priests in the sense that we are supposed to show holiness, emulate holiness and love and God's character to the world <laughs> so that it would draw others, just know that that will bring on suffering. But that suffering is what draws others close. That is the thing. That pressing of the olives is what produces the oil which glows and burns brightly for the lamps. Okay? Paul, Paul declared being in union with Messiah and his suffering was like the pinnacle of his faith. That everything else was like, he compared it to like garbage compared to being in union with Messiah's suffering. So how well do we suffer? And this is a very unpopular topic in the United States of America. Do we suffer well? And do we suffer knowing that we're doing so because we are priests? That we are like little Christs. We are, that's the name that was Christianos in Greek, given to us, little Christ. How much more, if we embody that essence, do we have to suffer? Now, the, the good thing about Yeshua's suffering was that, is that everyone there loved him, right? Even his own, all of his disciples, surely all of his disciples loved him, right? And, and didn't betray him. You see, it's easy to suffer for people that are grateful. That's easy. But the next level above that is suffering for people that are ungrateful. And that turn around and spit in your face and mock you. And to suffer well in that. Sheesh. That's a whole other level of being a disciple of Messiah. I don't know if I'm there yet, but I pray that I will be one day. It's easy to suffer for people that like you, isn't it? <laughs> lesson four that I took in the final lesson, that the story of Joseph should be seen as a prophetic foreshadow of the life of Yeshua ben Yosef, this Jesus, the son of Joseph. This story reveals that the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah is not plan B, but has all along since the foundations of the world been what? Plan A. He has been slain since the foundation of the world. And God forbid that we say, oh, he just, you know, he had a breakup with Israel. They just couldn't get their act together. So he went with plan B. He had to start this new thing. And now he's divorcing them. Yeah, they can join plan B if they want. But uh, no, that's, that is heresy. God has always had plan B. Oh, sorry, plan A. <laughs> Maybe he has plan B too. I don't know. Always had plan A. That Israel is the vehicle of salvation. And who is that salvation? It's Yeshua, whose name literally means salvation. Man, we have a consistent, unchanging God, don't we? His word is true. Imagine that. This story, more, and this is a personal note for Gabe Rutledge here. This story, more than any other narrative in the Bible, 
assures me that the author of this book is outside of space and time. And this is a supernaturally divined book. Doesn't mean that I understand everything in it. Doesn't, doesn't even mean that I can reconcile everything in it yet or apply all of it to my life. But I can look at the story, the next, the next what, 13 chapters we're about to read, and this, these next 13 chapters, more than any other portion of scripture, strengthens my faith that this is God's word. And I hope it does you as well as we journey through the next uh, 13 weeks, 12 weeks, I guess now, of the book of Genesis. Let's close in prayer and then I'll open up for comments or questions. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are unchanging and you are faithful. I thank you for Yeshua who suffered and died and was slain on our behalf even before the foundations of the world. Father, I pray that there's anyone in this room that has yet to put their hope and faith and trust in Yeshua, our Messiah, that they would do so today. That they would just say a simple confession that he is their Lord and Savior. They would pray a simple prayer of repentance and ask for forgiveness of their sins. And that they would declare Yeshua as King and Savior. I thank you for this opportunity to teach your word. And may the words that were read today and discussed, may they be seeds planted in our hearts and grow to fruition and bring a bountiful harvest for your kingdom. And I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. You guys have any questions or comments? We have a little bit of time. Anything? Yeah, James. Can you say a little bit louder? Oh, the fan's going. I can't believe it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, say it again. Greater work shall we do? Yeah. Suffering greater, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good point. Any other uh, comments? Yeah, Han? Guys, speak up real loud if you don't mind because I can't hear you very well over the fans. And other people want to hear your questions as well. So I have a question. Yeah. More daughters of Dina, yes. Yeah. I don't know why, but yeah, he apparently had more daughters than Dina. Yeah, it's a good observation. Very good. Yeah, Jason. Uh, might seem a little off topic, but when you first started, you talked about Jacob's age yeah. when Joseph was born, and I think it's it's funny because because we were told that in at this time people would forget about the world that was, and it almost seems like there's this. You know, there's the ordinary everyday that we're used to, and then there's this supernatural yeah. that is our faith is bound up in. But then it's like, wait a second, Jacob was 91? Mm. So it's almost like we've forgotten <coughs> that intermediate stage as the world was diminishing in its vitality. So mm. were people, but at least probably at Jacob's time or even Abraham's time, they still had an element of vitality from the previous world, the mm. antediluvian world. Mm-hmm. That was stronger than ours. Yeah, yeah. They're able to have children at more advanced age. I'm not saying that's yeah. not miraculous, but I'm saying, yeah. that, you know, and I was reading through um, Samuel yesterday, 
And I didn't realize that not only did David kill Goliath, but David and his men killed four sons of Gath, who mm. were all of that same lineage. Yeah. So yeah. you can imagine those similar size, of, probably. Yeah, the things that were going on. So it's yeah. kind of interesting that we've kind of forgotten that. Yeah. Let me repeat your, your comment for everybody here. Basically, he's saying it's interesting that um, post-fall, you know, it seemed like lifespans were kind of dwindling and vitality as humans were kind of dwindling um, over time. But it's interesting to see how Jacob, even if, as late as this point, is still having children at the age of 91. Um, and then he mentioned how, like, even David, when he uh, slain, slew Goliath, killed Goliath, uh, and he also, they also killed four of uh, the descendants of Gath, right? Is that right? And they would have been maybe similar in, which are, you know, related to Goliath, maybe similar in size. And but it's talking. He's talking about how it's interesting how uh, the vitality of humans was still pretty prevalent during the times of Jacob. And so that's interesting. Yeah. Any other? Yeah, Paul. Um, so this is the genealogy of Number seventeen. I heard somebody say something. I don't have anything that would be significant of seventeen, but maybe that's good. Maybe we should uh, study it throughout the week and figure out what is significant about seventeen. Because yeah, it is repeated when you see numbers like that repeated. So, but in the mirroring, yeah, and that's something we might talk about next week is the chiastic structure of this narrative of Joseph. And maybe that, maybe that plays into that chiastic structure. There's 17, there's 17. And maybe we're going to build down from there in that chiastic structure. If you don't know what a chiastic structure is, I'll talk about it next week probably and, and explain that to you. But yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's less about the number and more about the, 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 the symmetrical aspects of that story that we're going to see. So yeah, good observation there. We'll go to Jim and then Mike. that he was actually sold? That is a good question. I was actually thinking about that last night. Stacey and I were reading this. Uh, did, did Reuben ever realize that his brother was sold? Um, I don't know. You stumped me. It'd be interesting because isn't Reuben the one? No, Simeon is the one that he, he holds back in captivity. I don't know. Let's look for hints as we continue reading and see if we have any hints that Reuben actually knew what happened to his brother. Um, he may have at some point. Huh? He was there for the cover-up, but does he know where he ended up going? That's the question. Let's find out. That's a good question. Good question. Okay, Mike. Seventeen is a term for victory. A number of victory. Okay. Sheesh. Yeah. Shesh. Yeah. Thank you. I don't know. Sheesh. All these questions today. Yeah, Crystal? Well, with women not, maybe he could ask if he had marked one of these like once. You know, like, oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Right, right. Interesting. What was the legal, like, do you have any idea what the legal standing was for them to sell him? I mean, it must have been like a 
that's coming that's not on the up and up because Joseph had to look healthy. Yeah. I doubt he looked like a slave. Yeah. no legal recourse for it yeah so I'll, I'll repeat her question crystal is asking was there any kind of legal recourse for them selling this human being into slavery at that time and i would say you know according to our worldview that is an immoral thing to do obviously but according to people of that worldview and of that time that morality was now I and mean, we have things like in the code of hammurabi that maybe would have existed at that time i'm not sure but no, that would have been that would have been morality. Morality would have been relative to the people group in which you would have been living, and I'm sure those people, being merchants and traders, you know, like uh, my dad had this thing always going to pawn shops. He he kind of like didn't like pawn shops, but he would go to them on occasion. But he said, you know, pawn shops are where people uh, they 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 sell stuff that they stole to get money for drugs, and. It's kind of this weird apprehension with buying stuff at pawn shops because you're supporting this industry and this pawn shop owner knows that. He knows, okay, yeah, you didn't own that, um, you know, that firearm. You stole it maybe and you, you're now selling it to me and I'm gonna give you like just pennies on the dollar for it and I'm gonna turn around and sell it for more. So he's going, almost kind of like enabling this cycle of crime and deception and, and thievery. And you know, those merchants probably kind of had that level of morality as well. They probably that, thought they got a deal. Yeah, it's like, man, we got a deal here. We can turn around and sell him for even more. Exactly. Um, and we think that, like, okay, that is really deprived, morally speaking. That, um, wow, that is really messed up. Uh, but it, how, many, how many of you have seen Sound of Freedom yet? Anybody? Uh, yeah. uh, human trafficking and human slavery is growing right now in 2023 is the fastest growing uh, industry in the world right now and in this country is 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 the fastest growing in this country is human trafficking now human trafficking is just another term for slavery um, but it's a business and the love of money is the what Root of all evil. so yeah I, I, I don't think that there was a legal recourse for it at that time now in God's eyes they were sinning right but um Exactly, yeah. We think that we've evolved, like, okay, we're better, we're more moral human beings, and yeah, we don't struggle with that. Um, but yeah, it's gotten worse, absolutely. Okay, any other questions? Take a couple more. Patrick? Something that I would do like during a test, uh, stand in the back of the room and be quiet. <laughs> yeah. Examine our hearts. And, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's true. Yeah, times of times of testing and trial are some of the times that God seems least visible. That's a good point. Yeah. 